Well, good morning. morning. You thought this is Chicago, it's Miami. (laughs) It'll be that way for another day. Then we will become Green Bay or someplace like that. You know what it's like. Rhonda and I were hurrying. We were in a rush. We'd been out of town for a week, actually out of the country. We had just returned. And we were in a rush to get to Indiana. My mom was in ICU. It was serious, and we were really concerned we'd been gone. Uh, My mom's still in ICU, but she's doing a lot better. I'll head over there today to see her. But Rhonda and I were stressed. We got in the car. I was driving, and it was rush hour on Tuesday. Now, actually, we got around Chicago just fine, around the tri-state, but we hit the Indiana toll road, which rarely has traffic, and it was backed up. So Rhonda looked at Google Maps. Google Maps said five minutes. I thought, okay, I can handle this for about four. But I don't know what the sources of Google Maps were drinking on Tuesday afternoon. But five minutes turned out to be 45 minutes. And we discovered that the toll road, Indiana toll road, is undergoing major construction. One lane on each side closed for miles. That means there were millions and millions of those orange pylons. Never a good sign, right? Now, I wish I could say to you in that moment that I reached over and grabbed Rhonda's hand and said, oh, dear, this is going to be fun. Let's sing some worship songs. (laughs) Actually, what I was thinking was, I'm serious, I visualized, I wish I had a baseball bat. Because as I'm going at two and a half miles an hour, I wish I could just knock down one of these cones after another. I, I was fuming. I was so mad about 20 minutes into this at Google Maps. I had written a complaint in my mind. I was furious at the Indiana toll road. The lanes didn't need to be repaved. I was mad at the state of uh, Indiana. I was mad at Henry Ford for inventing the automobile. (laughs) And I was so mad at these innocent orange cones. It was anger. The title of our series, Losing Control. And the reality was it was such a very, very minor thing. Now, maybe for you it's not traffic. For me, it is traffic. Maybe for you it's just your taxes. Or it's your boss, or it's a spouse, or your lack of a spouse. Or or maybe it's your kid's teacher. Or somebody in your apartment complex, or... Or, or, or somebody that, that's done something to you, it's under your skin, and man, it, it, it's hard. We all, every single one of us, have our hot buttons, usually a number of hot buttons. And the tragedy of the human experience is that anger is way more natural to us than patient love. I mean, who among us says, oh, I'm so glad my friends have rejected me. I know in six years it'll feel better. Or who, 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 who says, you know, I'm so glad I took off work early and drove to my kids away game and the coach didn't play my little bumpkin. 
So today, I want to talk about this subject. I'm going to talk about your anger. I want to talk uh, to me uh, about mine. And I want to help you. Please hear me in this. I want to help you lay down your anger. Now, the Bible is very sophisticated about anger, finely nuanced. I want to help you lay down your bad anger, your self-absorbed, self-centered, narcissistic anger, and I want to help you take up good anger, righteous anger, kingdom anger, anger at evil, injustice, and sin. You see, if you know Jesus Christ, each and every one of you that know Jesus Christ have been called into full-time ministry. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, if you know Christ, you've been called into full-time ministry. Marketplace, home, neighborhood, wherever. You are, according to the New Testament, a believer priest. You are an ambassador of Jesus Christ, a minister of the gospel. You've been called into full-time ministry. And if we are going to advance the kingdom of God in this day and age, we've got to do something about this problem of anger among us. And so today I want to come at this in three different ways. I want to begin by talking about what is anger. And then I want to talk about why is it that our anger so quickly goes wrong, goes south on us. And I want to conclude by talking about what we can do to change. So let's begin with what is anger. Now the Bible talks, and this is so fascinating, because many of us tend to think anger, raised in the church, we tend to think anger is always wrong. No, it's simplistic, it's not the Bible. The Bible's finely nuanced, finely nuanced on this. The Bible talks about bad anger and good anger, destructive anger and constructive anger. Let's start with bad anger. Look at these three Proverbs. The wise fear the Lord and shun evil. But a fool is hot-headed and feels, yet feels secure. A quick-tempered person does foolish things. And the one who devises evil schemes is hated. Whoever is patient has great understanding. But the one who is quick-tempered displays folly. Now notice the language. Hot-headed, quick-tempered, quick-tempered. Bad anger. Just three verses from Proverbs chapter 14. Then we come to the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is speaking, look what he says about anger. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka na raka, was a first century Aramaic term of contempt, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Bad anger, I want you to see, is a big deal to Jesus. A big deal to our Lord. Now what is anger? A lot of different ways to come at it. One way is to say anger is the uh, emotional response, the visceral response to a blocked goal. Or desire, or expectation. A, a, a dream. But the problem with bad anger is that your response in anger seeks vengeance. Anger seeks vengeance. Bad anger wants to attack. Think road rage. Or all sorts of other things like that. 
Now, researchers tell us that anger is the most destructive of all the human emotions. And if you hold on to your anger, it's like continually drinking poison while you're hoping the other person will die. So, so destructive. You know that. But one of the things that uh, surprised me when I was looking into this issue of bad anger is that according to the Bible, bad anger can become addictive. Look at this passage, Proverbs chapter 19. A hot-tempered person must pay the penalty. Rescue them, and you will have to do it again and again. The implication there is anger can create this cycle, this downward spiral, addiction. The more angry you are, the more you become angry. Sobering verse. Bad anger, destructive anger, bad deal. Now let's go on. Let's talk about good anger, constructive anger. Uh, as a matter of fact, the vast majority of uses of anger in the Old Testament, for sure, and uh, I'm pretty confident the New Testament refer not to human anger, but to God's anger. So let me deal with the elephant in the room. This is a sore subject for a lot of people, a lot of us. This is one of the reasons so many people have so much trouble with the Old Testament. I don't like the Old Testament. Why don't you like the Old Testament? Because the God of the Old Testament is an angry God. Well, let me help you with this. The Old Testament, for that matter, the New Testament, tells us that the anger of God is both very real and brutal. And God is, demonstrates his anger towards his people, towards his enemies, towards the ungodly, and more. But unlike our human anger, God's anger is never out of control, and it is always, always, always directed toward sin. Let me give you an illustration. Look at Numbers 25, the sad story out of Israel's history. When Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods, their idols. So the people, the Israelites, ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these idols. So Israel yoked themselves to Baal, a Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's, now notice this, fierce anger may turn away from Israel. It's the Old Testament. It's why a lot of people struggle with the Old Testament, but it's not unique to the Old Testament. We come to the New Testament. And when Jesus comes on the scene, who we are told is perfect, we see several displays of 
significant anger, fierce anger in the life of Jesus. John chapter 2, he goes into the temple. The money changers are there. Jesus displays fierce anger. Does it in different places in the Gospels with the Jewish religious leaders. You hypocrites! Uh, but, but here's why. You can't dismiss the Old Testament and, and the New Testament because of the anger of God. And I want you to hear me in this. You cannot, you cannot have a God of love without a God of anger. You can't have anger without love. Because anger is the proper response when the object of your love is threatened. The proper response when the object of your love is threatened. So, for example, somebody attacks you, somebody attacks your kids. It's your anger that rises up inside of you spontaneously that catapults you into action, into protection. A woman loves a man. A mother loves a son. And the more she loves him, the more she hates the liar and the addiction in him. You cannot, you cannot have love without anger. And anger in its purest form is love in motion. Love in motion toward a threat against someone or something you care deeply about. And there's too much oversimplification in the church today. Too much notion, guilt that, oh, I'm angry, my anger is wrong. You can't have a God of love without a God of anger. So let me take this a step further. Ask yourself, what are the things that make you the most angry? Uh, think about that. And as you ask yourself that question, and as you think about it, what you discover are the very things that your heart loves the most. The things that make you the most angry are the things that your heart loves the most. And this is why the Bible tells us God is angry, very angry, fierce anger, and it is good anger. Because God loves us so much. He is angry at the cancer of sin that is wreaking havoc on the human race. Now others point out from a sociological perspective that individualistic Western civilizations like ours here in the United States that place a premium on personal autonomy and individual rights and really elevate these notions of, of personal freedom, tend, these cultures tend to hold up anger as too positive. Oh, just express it. Just get it out. It, it, it's good. It, it, it's your right. But conversely, more traditional cultures that place a greater emphasis on 
family and community and, and unity suppress anger. Good people don't get angry. It's harmful to the family. But the Bible has nothing to do with either. The Bible's finally nuanced about this subject. It, it tells us anger is both bad and, and good. Jesus Christ didn't die to free you from anger, but to make you angry at the right things. Sin, evil, injustice, in the right way, at the right time. Uh, Jesus Christ died, and another way to say this is so that you might know the anger of compassion that seeks to relieve the suffering of people that have been damaged by sin. Uh, Jesus Christ died that you might know the anger of restoration that refuses uh, uh, to condemn but believes in the power of the gospel to change a person's life, a sinner's life. Jesus Christ died that you might know the, the anger of service so that you persevere and, and you hang in there even when you're unappreciated. Call it motherhood. Or the anger of peace. You might um, hate disunity and, and give yourself to create harmony, starting with harmony in the home, harmony in, in the body of Christ. The Bible talks about bad anger, and the Bible talks about uh, good anger. And it's finally, finally nuanced. It's a sophisticated uh, subject here. So let me go on now. And, and here we need to get honest. And we need to ask ourselves the question, well, why is it that so often my anger goes south? My anger becomes uh, wrong. And why is it that I get all riled up and angry at the wrong things in the wrong way at the wrong time? Now let's go back to this anger chapter, Proverbs chapter 14. And look at verse 3. I want to show you a very interesting verse. A fool's mouth lashes out with pride, but the lips of the wise protect him. Now notice it says lashes out with pride. We would expect it to say, it's what we say, lashes out with anger. But it doesn't, it says pride. Why? Because anger is the fin and pride is the shark underneath the water. The shark is your self-centeredness. The shark is your need to control. The, the shark is your need to be seen in control. It's why we've entitled this series Losing Control. Because until you surrender control to God, you will never ever be able to do battle effectively with anger. Uh, when I saw Proverbs 13, man, a light just went on. Uh, it, it just really, really uh, struck me. 
And what I thought is, you know, when my significance, my esteem, my, my pride is threatened, I lash out in anger. That's the point of Proverbs 14.3. You lash out in pride. Other people, other situations do not make you angry. You choose to become angry when your perceived ego is assaulted. Your goal is blocked. And usually, if you peel away the layers of the onion, what's underneath that is pride, control, self-centeredness. I'm talking about why our anger goes south. I'm not talking about good anger. I just finished a couple of weeks ago reading Augustine's or Augustine's Confessions. Augustine was an early church father. The Confessions are his story of his conversion to Christ uh, at the end of the 4th century A.D. Some argue it's the first autobiography in the Western world. And in his confessions, he talks about the fundamental human problem, our problem being one of disordered loves. That our loves are out of order. Uh, our, our loves are distorted. So instead of, for example, of loving God and his agenda, we, man, uh, we love ourselves and our agenda. And along the way, we take good things uh, like careers and health and friends and family, and we turn them into ultimate things, and we expect a happiness from them that we can only find in God. Disordered loves. Look at how Augustine puts it. Look, look at these couple sentences. This was my sin, that not in him, that is God, but in his creatures, myself and others, I sought pleasures, honors, and truths. And I saw, as a result, fell into sorrows and all manner of confusion and mistakes. Here is your servant running away from his master in pursuit of a shadow. Disordered love is substituting Creation for the creator, it's running after a shadow. Because you have placed yourself, not God, as sovereign in your life, pride. Now this is why, this is precisely why we get so angry when we're snubbed. Or we're rejected. Or we make a mistake. Or, or we fail, or our kids fail. It's why we get so angry when we're cut off on the interstate or, or we lose our keys. Who took my keys? And everybody in the family runs for cover. Dad can't find his keys. And it's our fault. Two weeks later, he finds him under the couch where he was sitting. I, you know, I don't know. It's why we get so angry at that stuff, and we very rarely, if ever, get angry at the suffering and evil and injustice and chaos and tragedy in the world. We have an anger problem because we have a pride problem, disordered loves. And we make it worse because we tend to minimize our anger. We hate it in others, but we minimize it in our lives. And, and, and so we think, you know, 
my anger at work or my, angry, my anger at home. You know, it, it's not that big a deal. And it's a huge deal. Anger and traffic. It's why I began with the illustration of my struggle with uh, traffic. Um, you go back to the beginning of the Bible, the very fourth, the, the fourth chapter in Genesis. Cain, before he kills his brother, the first murder in the Bible, God steps into Cain's life, speaks audibly to Cain, and warns Cain about what's ahead. And he says to Cain, Genesis chapter 4, why are you so angry? Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is to master you. Now that phrase, crouching at the door, is in the Hebrew, literally, it's an idiom that, that pictures an animal like a lion or a tiger. Think a coiled snake waiting to strike. And God is saying to Cain, when you surrender, capitulate to your anger and the pride and the resentment that's underneath in Proverbs 14.3, you are surrendering to something lethal that left unchecked will destroy you. And so Cain throughout history bears, bears this horrible legacy. Our anger goes wrong because of our pride. And it's a much bigger deal than we care to admit. So what do we do? It's my third point. How do we break the angry cycle? Uh, how, how do we find healing? How can we change? Well, I want to suggest two steps. And if you're taking notes, get these. The first is you look within. The second is you look away. You look within and you look away. When I say look within, I mean you see and admit your problem with anger. Your bad anger. You own it. You understand that your anger broken. Pride broken. And you, you confess it. Now, if you're sitting here and, you know, you frankly find your anger a, a little harder to see in your own life than, say, your spouse's, he's got the anger problem, not me. Then, man, own your pride. <laughs> Uh, confess it. Uh, look at 1 John chapter 1. If we claim to be without sin, if, well, for our purposes, anger, pride, if we claim it doesn't exist in our lives, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, if we confess our sins, our anger and pride, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Denial is the refusal to admit the truth because the truth is too painful. John is saying, give up the denial. Give up the pretense. Confess. God, I am so mad at what this person did to me. And, and this anger is going wrong and it's poisoning my entire life. I am so mad at this situation at work. I am so mad at what's going on here at home. You confess it. 
and you keep confessing. It's 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And you confess your anger and you confess your pride. Now let me take this a step further. As you look within, you're going to be miles ahead of the game if you remind yourself that you are just as sinful, you are just as much a lawbreaker as the person that cut you off, as the person that snubbed you, as the person that failed you. Key to confession is understanding that we are just as broken as the people that make us angry. It's not your brokenness that keeps you from confession. It's your delusion of your togetherness. It's pride. Now you men, you men, I want you to listen to me for a moment. One of the reasons we as men so rarely confess sin in our lives and one of the reasons there's so much anger in our lives is because there's so much pride. John is saying, stop it. Stop the charade. Bring it to the light. Confess it. Otherwise, the truth is not in you. Own it. Anger makes us as, as husbands callous and demanding. It makes wives cold and critical and indifferent. Anger strips all of us of our sense of humor, our ability to laugh at ourselves, and it whispers in our ear, you're the victim. And it causes us to blame everyone and everything else for our stuff. And my point is to stop the cycle. You need to see it, see what's in your life and confess it. Now you parents, look with me. I want you parents to zero in with me. Look at Colossians 3 verse 21. Fathers, do not be embittered to your children or they will become discouraged. Now why does it say fathers, not mothers? Because I think it's a bigger issue, bigger problem for us as men. Embittered, by the way, suggests ongoing continued anger. You embitter your children because you've you got an anger thing. Now that God placed this verse in his word tells us that there is way too much anger in Christian parenting. And it starts with us as men. Dads. And so you dads, you moms, when you forget that you are every bit the sinner, the lawbreaker that your children are. And, and when you, confession gets distant and remote in your life. Oh, you know, I, I confessed sins when I was 17. And, and when you expect your kids to keep uh, the law or the rules that you can't even keep yourself, man, you're going to embitter your kids. Now, yes, we have, don't misunderstand, we have rules in our homes. We call our kids to obedience. But rules and, and your call to obedience is always, always designed to show your children they need a Savior, that it's impossible for them to keep the law. Anything else is moralism, not the gospel. 
Now, now what I'm saying is if you are an angry mom or you are an angry dad, the first step in breaking the cycle is to look within and to own it. To expose it, to bring it to the light. In the language of John, 1 John is to confess it. Now there's a second step. And that is to look away. To look to Jesus. To fix your eyes on Jesus. To look to Jesus and the forgiveness and the grace and the compassion and the mercy he offers you through his death on the cross. Now let me stay with parenting for a moment. You know, it's been said that real change in your life doesn't come through getting married. It comes through having kids. Now, why is that? Well, uh, that's because uh, being married can be like just being on one long date. But when kids come, everything changes. As one pastor said, everything heads toward the toilet. And what do we do as parents? We spend years sacrificing, 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 sacrificing. Now let's say um, you, this little child of yours grows up and becomes a teenager. A rebellious, ungrateful, destructive teenager. And just hang with me, and one day he or she looks you in the eye and says, I hate you. You have three options. One is you can withdraw. Or the other is you can lash out. And you're older and you've had lots of practice. You'll be better at that. Or the third is that you can move close and absorb the anger and respond in love without retaliating in kind. Now, do you see where I'm going? Do you see where this is headed? This is exactly what God has done for us. He sent his son. And we rejected him, we mocked him, we tortured him, we crucified him. Because we don't want to submit to God, we want to play God. We want to be God. We are the angry, rebellious teenager, each and every one of us. We're the rebellious teenager in the family. And yet Jesus moved close to us. Jesus became a man. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus absorbed our rebellion, our anger, our pride, and our sin, though he deserved none of it. Not a nanosecond of it. Saying on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. So how do we change? How do we break this cycle? That's destroying family after family, uh, church after church, relationship after relationship. Well, we look within and we own our stuff. We own our anger and we confess it and we continue to confess it. But we always look away. We don't stay within. And we look to Jesus. And when you see Jesus 
taking on himself your rebellion, your sin, your spiritual disinterest, your heart will be melted. And you will begin to dethrone the anger and the pride in your life. To the extent you continually tell yourself, Jesus did this for me. I'm the rebellious teenager. You will respond less in anger and more in love. You know the video game Angry Birds? One of the biggest ones ever biggest video games you'll play angry birds but you won't be an angry bird because in looking to Jesus Jesus will change you from the inside out let's pray Father, we come to you and we are amazed at what you have done for us in your son. We confess to you, God, our brokenness in this area, the anger in our families, the anger in our own lives, uh, the anger wherever we look. And we thank you that Jesus Christ died not to free us from anger, but to make us angry for the right things in the right way, at the right time. Thank you, thank you for Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.